1: Welcome
2: to the New Books Network.
0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Matthew S. Henry, author of Hydro Narratives, Water, Environmental Justice, and a Just Transition, published last year by University of Nebraska Press. Dr. Henry, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
2: Yeah, sure, happy to. So um, this book actually emerges from my dissertation project, which I completed at Arizona State University back in twenty eighteen, um, and it was uh, it was inspired a bit. I guess one of the sort of first inspirations for this book was um, when I was in a graduate class and I read Stephanie Le um, of Living Oil. Uh, and it was a book that really resonated with me. And um, my, my um, dissertation advisor, Joni Adamson, said, hey, um, you should do a dissertation like this on water. And of course, we're in Arizona. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, you know, I don't know, 2014 or 2015, a really particularly intense period um, of the you know current ongoing drought in the lower colorado river basin and i've been sort of trending towards doing something on water and so that's sort of how this project um was born um and you know initially um you know i thought i would write a dissertation on water that sort of included um some of the sort of authors that i grew up with um i'm originally from from western montana and i grew up um, fly fishing uh, whitewater rafting spending a lot of time around streams and water uh, and of course, I, I grew up reading things like A River Runs Through It and Edward Abbey, um, you know, sort of typical white, um, sort of outdoor recreation oriented male authors, right? Um, and so I, I quickly realized that they'd been written about too much and that the sort of crux of the issue, um, specifically in Arizona around drought, was indigenous water rights, uh, climate and environmental justice issues. And so I really sought to to orient this project around um, around sort of the problematic of, of environmental justice and water justice. Um, as a dissertation, this project was really um, sort of more of a typical sort of eco-critical project that I think maybe departed a little bit from usual eco-criticism in that it sort of analyzed a pretty broad archive of, of texts. I sort of took the word texts um, um, broadly. so. Looking at things like, um, you know, the book large looks at, um, or the dissertation I should say, um, looked at, you know, museum exhibits, public art exhibits, uh, literary fiction, poetry, photography, all sorts of things like that. Um, but it still, you know, theoretically was more grounded in sort of more traditional eco-critical literary theory. Um, but uh, as I sort of sought to develop this this book into a book project. Um, it, it really uh, evolved into something a little bit different than that. Um, and, and most of the book, actually all of the book, um, was written uh, during my time um, as, a, as a scholar in residence uh, at the University of Wyoming. Um, and what's important about that is when I was appointed here uh, at the University of Wyoming, uh, my appointment was in three separate departments. Um, I was in our um, Environment and Natural Resources Program our Department of English, and then also our School of Energy Resources. And um, in the School of Energy Resources, um, I was doing a lot of work on um, just energy transitions in the rural West, um, partially because um, I have some energy humanities background, and that sort of was how I got the job here, right? So um, in that time, I started really working within the framework of just transitions, just transition frameworks. Um And I realized that was a really useful way of thinking about and thinking through water justice issues was thinking about transition. We often talk about um, just transition in terms of energy and decarbonization, right? But um, looking around specifically in in the Western U.S., but also elsewhere, I think the word transition is a really useful term for thinking about sort of new realities around water um, and water systems in the United States, um, specifically with regard to how frontline and fence line communities are experiencing things like drought, uh, sea level rise, municipal water contamination, um, those sorts of things. So um, this is where the sort of just transition framework uh, came into the book. And um, I really, you know, I didn't write, rewrite it from scratch, but I'd say it's uh, about 70% of the book um, is actually new um, or different material from Uh, from the dissertation. Um, But that said, um, the first chapter of the book really emerges from my work in Arizona. So it's focused on sort of decolonizing drought discourse in the Western United States, really starting with drought uh, and moving outward, sort of thinking about water crises in the United States uh, broadly. Um, And, you know, if you read the blurb on the back of my book, one of the major concerns I'm thinking about in this book is the extent to which sort of dominant cultural and environmental narratives um, have sort of historically rendered um, certain communities um, ex- disposable or expendable um, in pursuit of, 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 economic growth. And that's, that's true with water um, specifically around, you know, if my sort of origin first chapter looks at um, the extent to which dams and reservoirs and, and irrigation systems have uh you know, traditionally sort of remade the Western US into what it is today at the expense, um, specifically of, uh, of indigenous peoples. Um, and so re- really the book is sort of thinking about how narratives of disposability or expendability of, of peoples um, have, have led to these sort of water crises as we think of them today. Um, and so therefore uh, sort of my main goal or my, my main contention is, in this book is thinking about how counter narratives or, or stories from affected communities Um, can help these communities sort of um, imagine or work towards um, just sustainable futures within a just transition framework. And I I use the the term just transition not um, as it's often used in like, you know, sort of think tank or policy documents, but I'm looking at the way in which climate justice organizations use just transition um, as a sort of shift from an extractive economy uh, to a regenerative economy that's predicated on um, social justice, economic equity, and sustainability. So that's the sort of origin story of the book, and I'm happy to you know go into a lot more depth.
0: Yeah, you kind of partway answered several of the questions that I have. So that's jumping off point to ask you to uh, go into a little more more detail there. So let's start with this term hydro narratives, uh, which is it's obviously something to do with narratives about water. Um, but can you explain a little bit about you know how exactly you're defining Hydro narratives and why they matter.
2: Sure, yeah, I'm happy to. So I'm really thinking about cultural representations that um, sort of story our um, human relationships uh, with with water and water systems. Um, And the reason I chose narrative is because I I'm, I'm really analyzing cultural representations that help produce or counter sort of existing cultural cultural narratives. So a lot of what the book analyzes is cultural narratives, specifically, say, in the Western United States around um, the region being arid and unproductive and therefore in need of being reclaimed or a region that is depopulated, a sort of Edenic place, you know, the sort of typical narratives of indigenous erasure. So, I'm really thinking about the interface between, um, between cultural forms, cultural representations and the way they contribute to or counter sort of broader cultural narratives. And one way we can distinguish this from, say, um, Hannah Boast's wonderful book Hydro Fictions is that you know, she's looking at Israeli and Palestinian literary fiction primarily in that book. And I didn't want to narrow my focus on simply literary fiction. Um, and so I chose narrative more broadly. And sort of the contention is that narrative and storytelling can be really important in terms of both apprehending historical injustices, but also um, thinking about and working towards new or better, um, better futures. Right. So, um, that's my sort of broad definition, um, of hydro narratives. I know it's kind of a mouthful, but I think that word narrative, um, does a little bit more work there than say hydro fictions, or I've seen hydro stories tossed around and just different work, not necessarily better work, but just a different objective, um, aim in that designation.
0: and i appreciate the the breadth of that narratives concept that you're bringing in not just literary fiction but also art and museum exhibits and Mm. you know all the other ways that we we tell narratives
2: Um, yeah yeah sorry go ahead go ahead
0: Okay, so you're coming at the issue of environmental justice from this environmental humanities kind of point of view. So how does that that differ from and add to the more conventional or familiar social science kind of approaches to environmental
2: justice? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I took a lot of inspiration from uh, the work of Joni Adamson, the work of uh, Julie C., other sort of similar... Um, scholars that don't really fit in a you know particular in a particular discipline, discipline, but really work across disciplines to think about environmental justices. Not just the purview of of the social sciences, of the hard sciences, of of an, analyzing demographic data and so forth, but really thinking about how cultural and story, you know, culture and storytelling, and um, can really, you know, sort of have always been part of the environmental justice movement, have always enriched the environmental justice movement, um, and and so their work um, it was a huge inspiration to me, and that they've they've always kind of straddled this this line, you know, between scholarship and community advocacy and activism and likewise um i really think the humanities specifically analyzing cultural forms can offer a, a different perspective on on what you know is sort of what environmental justice is beyond the sort of broad definition of the right of all people to enjoy the benefits bestowed by a healthy environment it's helps us understand sort of the origins of, of different ways of valuing The environment um different ways of interacting with the environment different um, ways of knowing um, that aren't always as detectable say in the social sciences right so um i think that that sort of different modes of storytelling help us get at that um in ways that um, other disciplines don't and so you know um tracing all the way back for example to the environmental justice reader i think that was published in something like 2000 this sort of cultural current um um, that was prevalent in that book. There was a whole section de- devoted, for example, to poetics and, and literary criticism and that, that sort of work um, th- that sort of carried on in, in, in a lot of the work of a lot of scholars I admire and the sort of role of storytelling and sort of apprehending injustice, understanding the sort of roots of injustice and then imagining uh, and therefore then working towards um, alternative futures, I think is a really important way to, to conceive of, of justice beyond just Um, the sort of policy-making social sciences focus.
0: Okay, and then you mentioned in one of your earlier uh, answers, the idea of the just transition, and you actually brought up the thing that I wanted to uh, kind of jump off from, which is that that's one of those terms that has hit that level of popularity that it has now branched off that, you know, different people are using that term in very different ways sometimes. So can you talk about, for the purposes of your book, how are you conceptualizing the idea of a just transition?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. And, you know, you're absolutely right in that, you know, the just transition framework has sort of reached a sort of point of saturation in, that, in which it's sort of at times being used in ways that stray far from its origins um, or being used in ways that um, don't really suggest, you know, gesture towards towards justice specifically. And I see this in, you know, articles I'm asked to peer review or, you know, working, uh, you know, with with nonprofits and, and government officials and such. It's just being tossed around in every which way. Um, so one thing, you know, I take pains to do, especially the introduction of my book, is sort of trace the origins of just transition as a framework. Um, to you know, post nineteen seventies, um, you know, environmental legislation in the United States. Um, you know, and it's funny. I'm this just, just this morning. I was, I'm reading Silent Spring to teach in my grad class tonight. But I'm really thinking about this, uh, this sort of what came in the aftermath of all of these new environmental um, regulations and regulatory agencies in the nineteen seventies. And and one of those was um, the sort of Regulation of pollutive industries um, and the sort of emergence of Superfund um, efforts to, you know, to clean up contaminated work sites and contaminated environments. And what emerged from that was this concern amongst um, amongst workers in pollutive industries about, you know, not just, um, you know, not just what would happen to um, in terms of cleanup of the environment but what would happen to the displaced workers in industries that were being being regulated and um, tony Mizaki um, is is one of those he he was uh, a leader in the oil um, chemical and atomic workers union or association and um, was really advocating for uh, social safety net measures for workers who are being displaced uh, from pollutive industries or industries that were being increasingly regulated, um, and he initially called this um, he called this a super fund for workers, which doesn't have really a pleasant ring to it. Um, but in in conjunction with um, Barry Commoner, they came up with this idea of just transition. For workers, um, and what that meant was um, thinking about um, things like w- workforce development and um, f- funds for retraining, um, funds for sort of helping communities um, sort of move past uh, being dependent on specific pollutive industries and and sort of um, you know thrive without those industries, um, and think about job creation and community health in a sort of really holistic sense. Um, and it was inspired by the GEI Bill, um, uh, um, believe it or not. So the idea of you know World War II veterans coming back and needing sort of um, you know government support or public support to reintegrate into into civilian life, um, and so that's sort of the origins of just transition. And I, I, I really like those origins because it thinks about just transition really holistically. Um, and, and you know, it's evolved since then, um, been adopted uh, by environmental justice organizations like the Just Transition Alliance and other, others that were opposing NAFTA in the 1990s, um, you know, in this sort of... Um, emergence of sort of joint labor and environmental concerns, um, uh, you know, with the advent of neoliberal trade policies, um, and, you know, has since been adopted in the sort of environmental justice and climate justice movement uh, to really mean a sort of shift from uh, one type of economy to another one that um, exploits workers, um, does not sort of, it does not concern itself with the environment or environmental protections, um, to one that is really more predicated on economic and social equity um, and, and, and sustainability and resilience and often climate justice organizations incorporate, um, you know, more other types of liberation movement platform items like, um, you know, for example, return of indigenous lands or reparations, uh, climate reparations, or um, sort of more decolonial theory type of, type of demands. Right. And so that's where I'm really drawing on just transition from. And in the book, I use the just transition alliances sort of really robust framework. Work for a for a just transition as as my sort of theoretical lens, right? Um, so I really try to differentiate the sort of just transition we often hear about when it comes to energy, which is you know I, we're, I'm in Wyoming and we're we're facing an energy transition here that's pretty substantial and. There's talk about just transition here, which is, you know, workforce development and, you know, affordable housing and some things that would allow certain coal coal dependent communities to weather the storm. And I think that's all really important. But I, just transition looks different in different places. And it's really about um, sort of responding to environmental change, um, economic change and social change in ways that um, don't leave communities behind, um, encourage sort of. Uh, community participation. Um, there's a there's a sort of participatory justice element to just transition. Um, it's sort of sovereignty in ways to determine uh, the path forward for communities. So um, that's where I'm, I'm really trying to think about just transition and quite frankly, rescue it from uh, the ways in which it's being misappropriated all over the place at this point. So um, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right that we mostly hear the term just transition in the energy. Context. Uh, I'm here in, in Pittsburgh, so we have the same kind of you know questions about the future of fossil fuels uh, as we try to move to different sorts of energy sources and some of the same um, you know issues that spark the the just transition uh, conversation. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about you know how this idea of the just transition looks a little bit different in the context of water as opposed to uh, energy, where probably most people have
2: encountered the idea before. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, one thing, you know, I, I see more and more is, is talking about water in the Western United States as, you know, we're facing a water transition and that's something that markets uh, can't do as much about as say, for example, you know, just transition in the fossil fuel industry is often, or, or transition in the fossil fuel industry is often sort of delayed or, delayed or, or sort of, um, you know, uh, uh sort of staved off by various sort of regulatory measures or subsidization of, of different industries. But in the West, you know, the Colorado River is drying up. There's not a lot we can do other than tweak um, allocations of water, try to come to some consensus among states about who gets how much water. Um, and and so transition uh, in that sense in the Colorado River Basin is that it's pretty much inevitable. Um, but ensuring that uh, this, this sort of new... Reality around water is just and takes into account historical inequities, historical violences, specifically around um, settler colonialism, but also, um, you know, racial inequality as well. Um, that's not that's not guaranteed Um, that's not necessarily at the forefront of for example discussions between various state entities Um, and so one thing I think about a lot in the book is how more people can have a voice into determining what the water future looks like in their specific region now that's uh, it's obviously very different in in central Arizona what a just water transition looks like a, a sort of way in which, um, communities can adapt and be supported to adapt in ways that, um, are, are just and uh, and take into consideration everyone. It looks a lot different in places like, for example, Flint, Michigan, or, or Appalachia, um, um, in Appalachia, for example, um, you know, really been thinking about the, the coal transition, uh, and, and the fossil fuel transition there in comparison with Wyoming. And that transition looks different even, uh, even in here, uh, here in here in Wyoming, and that uh, they've been going through the transition a little bit longer than we have here, um, and so you know the, the, there's been more time to plan for it, um, more time to think about diversifying the economy, and you know sort of. Um, more voices have been able to be heard. Um, whereas in Wyoming, that's quite different. And we also don't have a lot of opportunities to, for example, um, you know, think about, um, sort of prepare for the future. Um, so just transition, I think is really, it, it depends on, for, for example, his, historical injustices that have taken place in different places, uh, and what the responses to those might look like. Um, you know, in my Flint chapter, um, I really think about, um, you know, the extent to which the Flint water crisis was a product of racial capitalism. Um, and I use Laura Polito's work and, and what she argues is that um, it, more or less like the environmental justice movement in the United States has has failed in a lot of ways because it's, you know, been primarily preoccupied with litigate, litigation and, and operating in courtrooms and sort of seeking um, court victories that are, you know, mainly limited to the sort of issue at hand and and argues that we need to think outside of the sort of traditional frameworks for seeking justice or relief in the courts. And so um, one way I think about what a just water transition would look like in Flint is the sort of reclamation of community identity, community sovereignty, uh, specifically through, through art. Um, And, and that might be street art, that might be performance art. um, But really just thinking outside of the box in terms of the ways in which uh, we might think about what justice looks like um, in different places. So um, that's, you know, that's something that, you know, in, in, like a lot of energy focused just uh, transition literature is is starting to come through is that um, no transition no, no true transitions are the same. Um, problems are different depending on a range of sort of cultural and political and economic factors in different locations. And that sort of top-down approach to sort of try to fit everybody or you know every, every sort of situation within a sort of broad universalized just transition framework um, simply isn't going to work. So um, it's good to see that consensus on the sort of energy-focused just transition side. Um, I think it's the same thing. Uh, it's the same thing for water.
0: Okay, so, and you kind of touched on the, the four main case studies that make up the the core of the book. So you've got Lower Colorado River, you've got Flint, Michigan, you've got Appalachia, and then you've got uh, sea level rise. Um, and I was thinking that we could do kind of a deep dive into one of them to sort of illustrate your approach to uh these kinds of questions and then you know kind of leave the other ones as something for readers if they you know find your approach interesting and exciting and they have a reason to go check out uh check out the book and so the one that i wanted to to do the deep dive on was that lower Colorado River one. uh, Because I actually, back in the the late aughts, I lived in Arizona. So I saw some of this up close. And I'd actually just gone back to visit for a week um, this winter just before I got your book. And then I opened it. And there's this chapter on (laughs) Arizona and the Central Arizona Project Canal and stuff, all this stuff that I had been noticing when I was and reminded of when I was back down there. So just to start us off on that uh, case study, what are some of the the conventional narratives that get told about water in the Southwest? And then where do you find uh, these counter narratives or or different narratives uh, to challenge that?
2: Yes, happy happy to go into that. Um, Yeah, so that, you know, I, I really start out in that chapter with thinking through the sort of original ways in which the West was viewed as a sort of space to carve up into neatly gridded parcels and irrigate and reclaim uh, and sort of reinvigorate um, in the sort of image of of the Garden of Eden, for example. And so, you know, sort of, I sort of start with a sort of typical critique of, you know, John Wesley Powell's Expedition West, in which he argued against, uh, you know, sort of irresponsible development of the West. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, the sort of movement out west or the progression west from from east to west, um, you know, in the late 1800s by Anglo Americans sort of ignored his his advice and, and and really sought to sort of transform land in ways they saw fit without, for example, um, building settlements alongside rivers or sources of water. Um, and and so he really argued for the sort of wise settlement of the West. Um, and he's often hailed, you know, in some circles, um, as someone who sort of foresaw the drought in the Western United States. And however, what I try to do is problematize even Powell's uh, thinking, you know, he was uh, very much uh, steeped in the sort of white Anglo settler colonial project, he was um, disdainful or dismissive of indigenous water use practices, um, and 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 was really, uh, you know, very much a sort of, you know, t- you know instrument of, of white settler progress and displacement of indigenous peoples going west, specifically in an ideological level. So I kind of work forward from John Wesley Powell and think about, you know, what was the narrative about the west and how did it evolve over time you know and initially you know the it viewed as a sort of terra nullius to settle uh, and 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 water as a sort of instrument to to develop the western u.s um but also um even critiques of that model um are often you know often exclude um, indigenous experiences pers- or perspectives, so I, I kind of take Mark Reisner's book *Cadillac Desert* a little bit to task in the book because, um, you know, that's a sort of viewed as a sort of bible for understanding water in the West, and and, and it often um, pops up even in um, literary fiction as this sort of um, sort of indispensable source for understanding water in the West. But Reisner too himself really doesn't um, doesn't really think about indigenous perspective experiences really just applies a sort of white settler environmentalist lens uh, to the Western US. Um, And it's, you know, it's a wonderful and indispensable book, but it's also an incomplete uh, book. And so I started thinking about the ways in which a lot of the ways we talk about drought and water in the West, um, like in dominant discourse, really ignores indigenous perspectives about, um, about what drought means and how for example, water theft, um, water theft, and and displacement onto reservations really sort of produced conditions of drought, drought and deprivation of water a hundred years before. Now, say these sort of settler cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas are experiencing some of the same things. So there's this kind of new narrative now about the newness of this drought, and it's um, and, and, and sort of an obsession with what the collapse of settler society might look like and you know for example coverage of the drought you often see photographs of things like uh, lake mead or lake powell sort of drying up these sort of scenes of like abandoned marinas and stuff like that which really sort of erases the ways in which for example the gila river indian community in the early 1900s was Um, more or less, um, you know, reduced to finding new ways of of subsisting because upstream white settlers um, started damming and diverting the Gila River for their own fields, right? And so there's this sort of earlier experience um, of of drought, of of deprivation of water that's sort of being lost um, in the mix. And so trying to really push back against both the sort of original sort of um, settler narratives in the late 1800s, early 1900s around reclaiming the Western US to even the ways in which sort of ostensibly and pro-environmental narratives also exclude those perspectives as well. Um, and so that's, that's really what the sort of counter narratives are to that is that, um, you know, I, I use Kyle White's uh, notion of co- collective continuous or c- continuance or this idea of social resilience in the face of this sort of efforts to erase indigenous presence and agency. And so really try to highlight the ways in which, um, you know, sort of indigenous communities, the the Tahona Odom, the the, um, the, the sort of Hilo River Indian community, um, the, the Colorado River Indian tribes, um, are really sort of asserting that presence through various artistic representations, and also um, are continuing to play a sort of more important and broader role in discussions and, um, planning for, um, a future in which there's going to be a lot less water in the Western U S. So try to sort of, um, look at the way those, those sort of counter narratives sync up with, um, the extent to which indigenous communities are aiming to, and and increasingly having a voice in sort of hydropolitical discourse in the Western United States.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: Yeah, and I, I was particularly interested that you, you bring up one of the, I think, few ways that a lot of the, the dominant discourses about uh, water in that part of the country do acknowledge uh, the the indigenous history is the this um, like cautionary parable of the collapse of the Hokam civilization and the way that gets used as kind of like, oh, they, you know, screwed it up and collapsed and now we might do the same thing and you kind of put out no that's not actually really what happened at all <laughs> the, <laughs> right those, those people like their descendants are still there you know yeah. They, yeah. they went through some things and they changed but they you know had that collective continuance and you know the, the autumn people are still there um through both you know the stuff that happened uh you know pre-colonially and all the stuff they've had to deal with during the, the colonial era um, and they're producing many of these narratives that you're uh looking at uh in that chapter
2: yeah it's and it's really interesting too you know having been down there um working on this chapter as sort of it's probably like the biggest holdover from my dissertation into the book and and one of the things i you know found really interesting was the ways in which you know phoenix arizona is sort of superimposed on the hohokums you know sort of previous land usage markers right so like a lot of the canals for the Central Arizona project which you know brings water to the city um, were previously Hohokam canals and um, you know uh, Hohokam used water from the Salt River um, that flows through the Phoenix Valley right and um, you know there's this you know w- what I found really interesting was in Tempe Arizona where Arizona State University is there's this old mill um, that's not used anymore that used water from the Salt River. Um, and was really sort of a product of this, this sort of effort uh, to reclaim, quote unquote, the, the Western United States um, from its sort of state of. Sort of um, misuse, right? And misuse within in the capitalist sense. And um, one of the artist, art pieces I look at is this um, this, this sort of mural um, set up by um, Oodham artists um, that sort of it, that was put right in the shadow of that mill, and it sort of reasserts uh, indigenous presence in the valley that is not always easy to see when you're driving through Phoenix or Tempe and you're seeing, you know. Uh, historical preservation of old, uh, you know, of old agricultural set settlements or buildings or, you know, that sort of thing. And so this sort of like, it, it was to me sort of a, a a really importantly strategic place to put this mural in the sort of shadow of this, of this old mill that right that used and siphoned, um, it, it sort of, uh, you know, it, the mill was, you know, processing, you know, crops that were grown using water that was stolen from from indigenous peoples right and so it's sort of this this counter narrative that's very visceral you can walk past it on the street down right downtown uh, Tempe um, on Mill Avenue and, and look at it and it's sort of calling attention to this deeper deeper history of the area so um, yeah, so there's a lot of ways that you can sort of there's a lot of markers or indicators within the city. You just have to know kind of where to look for them. And I was specifically looking, you know, at, at different artistic representations, right? So,
0: yeah, and as a, a geographer, I'm always excited to to see how you know the where of things makes a difference. Like the the art uh, installation you're talking about, you know, what that means draws a lot on where it's located. You know, it wouldn't be the same if they up those same paintings somewhere else that the location contributes to the the story that it's telling um, and then i also wanted to talk a bit about uh you know another one of these like narratives that's not a conventional like you know fictional text narrative uh that you talk about in that chapter which is the pueblo grande museum in phoenix uh which i actually visited this past december so it was fun reading uh, your take on it after i had just been there and i a lot of things that you mentioned you know i noticed as well when i was there i didn't do quite the depth of analysis uh that you did but i i noticed some of the things there about how they are telling the story differently than even a lot of the other uh museums and things that i went to uh, in arizona so can you talk a bit about the pueblo grande museum and how they're both kind of deliberately and also inadvertently telling this counter narrative about uh, water?
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, first glance, the Pueblo Grande Museum, you know, is a, you know, sort of typical, typically curated sort of archaeological curiosity within the city of Phoenix. And it's situated between these highways, you know, these major highways that flow through the city that sort of take you to downtown Phoenix or the suburbs and sort of you know, calls attention to the extent to which Phoenix is such a sprawling place that's utterly dependent on this sort of unsustainable water use, you know, approach to water use, right? Um, And, you know, you go in and it's sort of got the history of the Hohokam sort of curated inside, um, you know, with sort of replicas of, you know, and and murals and sort of dioramas of the sort of history of the Hohokam in Phoenix. And then, of course, you go outside and, you know, Pueblo Grande, you know, Translates to big house, and it was sort of this viewed as a sort of strategically important structural site with a um, you know that that sort of controlled um, some of the extent to which water flowed from some of the larger main canals from the Salt River into the different um, you know the smaller smaller canals going out into the the Hohokam's fields, right? And so it's you know it's it's really interesting as you walk through and you think about it, you know, and and, and sort of its positioning in the city, it's, it's sort of you know you know, beneath the shadow of these these huge buildings and these these um, and these highways and these, these developments and so forth. And um, But as you look closer, um, you know, the thing I noticed first when I went is that it doesn't, you know, narrate a history of Hohokam disappearance the way you might find in a lot of histories of the Hohokam, but um, calls on and, and incorporates sort of oral histories from their descendants, um, in the region, um, the Odum specifically. Right. And so, um, so that was notable in that it doesn't narrate this sort of myth of disappearance. Um, but the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that, um, you know, when you go outside to the outdoor part of the the site, um, what you find is uh, a replica of a Hohokam garden. Um, and they've got um, plants growing in it, um, you know, some traditional crops, um, and they've, you know, got these rows of crops. And when I went the first time, you know, they had recently been watered, the soil was wet. Um, and so you're looking at this and they sort of call you to imagine what it might have looked like thousand, you know, thousand years ago, but then sticking right out, um, of the soil to the left of the garden is this copper pipe in a sort of like it looks kind of like a staple into the ground, right? And the valve, um, the sort of valve lever was turned to the on position. And it's sort of this like really rude reminder that like, in order to replicate this history, we must rely on this other water system that is hidden beneath the ground. That's difficult to represent the sort of labyrinthine sort of network of canals and municipal water infrastructure. That's bringing water from, the salt river and the colorado river and you know all you know pr- potentially groundwater and so forth and and so it's this there's, there's sort of dissonance right in and the, in going there and that um the the i think it's unintentional but it seems that the museum is really trying to sort of um, juxtapose or at, at least achieves juxtaposition between these two different ways of Harnessing water and using water in the region um, in ways that sort of make it impossible to ignore that which existed prior to this sort of palimpsest of of settler infrastructure on the city. Um, And I don't think they mean it as sort of a political commentary, although I do appreciate and I think it's important that it doesn't, you know, that overall the experience there doesn't sort of narrate this myth of, you know, the sort of vanishing Indian, right, that was sort of central to the the settler colonial project. But the other thing that I found really interesting when I visited the Pueblo Grande Museum is that they have this sort of gallery of rotating art exhibits inside. Uh, And so they can change every month. And when I went there, um, there was this exhibit that was, I I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was put on by a local photographer by the name of Wayne Norton. And it was essentially sort of a eulogy to the West, um, uh, the, the sort of West sort of, falling into decline due to drought. And so it was all these pictures, um, black and white pictures of, you know, beached uh, beached boats at marinas at Lake Powell and, um, you know, abandoned uh, subdivisions outside of the city of Phoenix and Las Vegas because of failure to access water and quotes on the wall from people like Edward Abbey and Mark Reisner, which is a, again, another site of sort of dissonance is that there were no indigenous voices or perspectives included in this sort of, eulogy to the collapse of a very sort of settler vision of the West and sort of applied this white settler optic to drought um, that again like I think put into even sharper relief the type of you know critical work the museum was doing which was sort of insisting on a deeper history um, insisting on the sort of extent to which despite all of this despite the sort of experiences of water theft and dispossession and drought that um, you know, the region's indigenous peoples persist and in fact um, have won some major water rights uh, uh, victories in the last 20 years or so. Um, uh, and that's sort of, and that juxtaposition to me was just fascinating. So um, I found it a really rich site to sort of consider, um, you know, consider the sort of ways in which um, we talk about water and drought in the West.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we'd be on like a Two and a half hour episode here. If we went in that much detail about all of your case studies, but I did want to give you a chance to just you know say a, a couple words about each of the other three case studies, kind of why you picked them and what your your main takeaway that you have from each of the other uh, key case studies is.
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, what I really wanted to do in this book was, um, you know, think about water and water justice from a range of perspectives, a range of geographies to sort of emphasize the heterogeneity of just transitions and how we might think of just transitions in different ways, you know. And so, in, you know, in the first chapter, my sort of takeaway is these sort of counter narratives about drought can really help us understand the importance of and sort of support this broader um, engagement with indigenous communities, this broader participation of indigenous communities in determining the future of water in the West. In uh, you know, my second chapter, I really look at the Flint water crisis um, as a symptom of, of racial capitalism, sort of following the work of Laura Polito And, and in, in doing so, um, I analyze a play by Jose Casas. Um, he's a playwright at the university of Michigan, um, it's called Flint, um, and what's unique about his play because there are multiple plays called Flint or productions called Flint or documentaries that sort of look at the water crisis. What makes his really unique and interesting is that it's an ethnodrama, so it draws on um, testimony and interviews from 100 residents of Flint. He sort of hit the ground and sort of pounded on doors and and met with people in Flint, and then had um, students at the University of Michigan. Um, Sort of reenact, uh, sort of perform um, the transcripts of these interviews, right? And so, what what it really calls attention to is the ways, uh, what the play calls attention to is the ways in which um, you know the city um, was racialized as black, um, um, and and sort of the ways in which um, it was a sort of you know victim as a city of this sort of um, disinvestment and abandonment of um, you know abandonment by the state. And, um, the play really helps us understand the sort of ways in which, um, systemic racism can produce this sort of politics of abandonment, right. Um, uh, specifically uh, looking at, um, you know, the extent to which that, that crisis emerged from efforts to sort of save money by abandoning investment in, in black communities. Right. And so, um, it really helps us, um, think about ways in which we might, Imagine a just transition beyond the purview of of courtroom litigation and sort of the typical avenues, right? And so, beyond that analysis, I look at um, urban reclamation and art projects like the Flint Public Art Project, um, uh, the uh, the sort of uh, really interesting hybrid art project um, uh, collaborated on by fashion designer Tracy Reese and Mel Chin, an artist, um, in which they took. Nestle water bottles and turn them into fabric and then use that fabric to create a fashion line and um, use the profits from, um, you know, from generating that fabric to pay uh, people in Flint to to make make these clothing items that sort of suggest a new way or a new way of thinking about um, community reinvestment and, and provide a sort of really interesting critique on, um, on the Flint water crisis. So that's chapter two, and I'm probably going into too much depth here, but um, you know, my third chapter, and it's, it's based on an article I published in environmental humanities a few years ago um, basically looks at sort of Appalachian literary fiction, poetry, and photography and works to sort of critique the, um, Practice of natural resource extraction as a sort of cultural practice, something sort of central to to people's identity in places like you know, Appalachia. Um, we see the same thing here in Wyoming, and um, it's sort of takeaway is, um, you know, the sort of conclusion to the chapter looks at um, a couple of different. Um, ways in which landscape um, architects and artists are imagining a post-extractive Appalachia. And um, uh, one of those is some really innovative ways of, for example, filtering acid mine drainage um, from abandoned coal mines and turning it into paint pigment or, um, you know, sort of using treatment plant or treatment facilities, a sort of landscape art that sort of imagines a post-extractive Appalachia without also like condemning its sort of coal past, um, as to, in any way. So it's a really interesting way of sort of adjudicating what a a new Appalachia might look like. And, you know, that fourth, the fourth chapter, I really take liberties with the idea of, 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 um, of of water and hydro narratives. and really thinking broadly about sea level rise. And, um, I look at, um, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, New York 2140 and um, Ben Zetland's Beasts of the Southern Wild is sort of heuristics for Green New Deal policy proposals that um, may or may not um, pay uh, careful attention to the racialized dimensions of climate change adaptation, um, specifically um, what I, um, this, this concept of race, racial coastal formation, or sort of like um, efforts to sort of build up climate resiliency in coastal communities that um, often privileges or protects white and wealthy communities over black and brown communities, for example. So um, a lot of that, that chapter is uh, predicated around the sort of framework of the racial capital scene. So that's kind of the, those are the four you know main chapters of the book. And then I kind of end with this coda in the book, looking at, um, thinking about just transition as a theory of social change and really kind of covering the work that I've been doing here on the ground in, in Wyoming. So um, that's the overview. Um, and I know I can't go into more depth, but um, yeah, so all right yeah i think that's that's good that will get
0: listeners interested they can pick up the book for for more um then i also wanted to ask about the cover image uh for the book because it's it's a really striking uh image here so if i can try to describe it for you know folks listening by by audio that is kind of a a hybrid of like a, a view of of the earth from one of the poles where you've got this like ice cap in the middle, surrounded by water, but then it's also an eyeball with a big uh, black pupil in the middle. So can you tell us about what this uh, piece is and why you chose it for the cover of the book?
2: It's a great question. Um, So that is a piece of art by an artist named John Sabra, and he's a professor of art at Ohio university. And he painted this using, um, Acid, so basically, the materials filtered out from acid mine drainage contaminated creek water. Um, and he 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 filtered those iron oxides into different paint pigments, and then turned that those paint pigment or that that material that iron oxide material into paint. Um, and then he painted this, and he has a whole series. Um, and he calls calls it toxic art, and it's been displayed around the country in various art galleries so what you're looking at there even though it looks like a polar ice cap or an eyeball is actually uh, the result of basically um, doing environmental reclamation and then turning it into art Um, and um, john was really instrumental in helping me write my third chapter he allowed me to interview him um, multiple times. um, and, and really gave me sort of a really interesting glimpse into into his artistic practice. Um, and, you know, at the time when I was interviewing him, he was scaling up production. He'd actually created this this whole facility along the side of this this creek with these murals around the fence that protected the facility that were sort of thinking about what a post extractive Appalachia might look like. And so he was very happy to agree to put this photograph on the cover and I was you know, I was thrilled that he he was, you know, agreed to that because I do agree it's a really striking cover and just want to give a shout out to the University of Nebraska Press um, design team for the cover because I couldn't be happier so
0: yeah it's a, a really nice looking uh, book in a, addition to having good content uh, in <laughs> it. okay so uh, we're moving towards the end of our time here so I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you sure. were writing this
2: yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, the first person I absolutely have to thank is my wife, Jessica, who supported me <laughs> through graduate school and, you know, tolerated me sitting long nights working on this, um, given that we have two two small kids. Um, I couldn't have possibly done this project without her. So absolutely have to thank thank her. Um, Joni Adamson and Claudia Sadowski-Smith, uh, my, you know, my uh, PhD advisors were really helpful in You know, not just getting the dissertation to completion, but helping me think about conceiving of this project beyond the dissertation. Um, The Hobbes School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, you know, bringing me on as a as a scholar in residence—a fancy word for a postdoc—to to to support the completion of this book. Scott Henkel and the um, Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research provided funding and um, workshop opportunities for this project. So I have to definitely have to say thankful to him and, and, and the Institute. And, um, you know, more broadly than that, gosh, I could go on and on forever. Um, but those are some of the, you know, sort of the primary champions of this book. So I'm, I'm just really grateful for the, for the support.
0: All right. And that brings us to our traditional final question, which is, what are you working on next?
2: It's a great question. Um, so I've really been um, really been doing a lot more work on the climate change and colonialism nexus um, here uh, at, at the University of Wyoming, and I am putting together currently a, a book proposal um, in con, um, in tandem with uh, my literary agent uh, for a book for a broad audience, a trade book on the um, on the sort of a brief history of, of climate change and colonialism with the goal of sort of tying the sort of climate colonialism nexus into understanding climate geopolitics um, right now. So um, I'm really excited about that project. Um, And then beyond that, um, what else am I working on? My goodness. Um, I'm part of a team that just won a three year, $800,000 department of energy grant to study the environmental justice dimensions of nuclear energy siting in Wyoming. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of just transition thinking around that project as well. Um, so those are just a few of the things I'm working on. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited about the future and didn't expect to be working on another book so soon, but really excited to be doing it.
0: All right. Well, I will definitely keep an eye out for that one and maybe have you come back on to talk about it once that's out.
2: That'd be a lot of fun.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much
2: for coming on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: This has been a conversation with Matthew S. Henry, author of Hydro Narratives, Water, Environmental Justice, and a Just Transition, published last year by University of Nebraska Press.